Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 1st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. It's been a busy week in our appellate courts, so let's get started with our report from the Court of Appeal. Following the WCAB's September 2009 N-Bank Almarez-Guzman decision, parties in each of the two cases have filed for a writ of review in different districts of the Court of Appeal. The outcome of these cases affects the manner in which ratings are calculated under the AMA guides. The Guzman case was filed on October 16th in the 6th Appellate District. Numerous interested parties have now all filed amicus or friend of the court briefs in support of the employer urging that the N-Bank decision be reversed. On February 23rd, the Court of Appeal issued a writ of review in the Guzman case. This is a significant event since a Court of Appeal has the option to refuse to grant a writ. Once a writ is granted, they have agreed to intervene in the case, read the briefs, consider oral arguments, and then issue a formal written opinion which can agree or disagree with the decision of the WCAB. It will be several months or more before there's an opinion. In granting the writ, the Court of Appeal denied to issue a stay of the September and bank decision. The Court of Appeal just published an opinion in Vicki Elliott versus WCAB, which confirmed the unanimous N-Bank WCAB decision in Cervantes versus Elegia Foods uh, food products. The Elliott case was the first opportunity for the Court of Appeal to rule on the correct procedure to authorize or deny treatment in a spinal surgery case. The Elliott and Cervantes decisions set forth new guidelines for reviewing surgery authorization requests in spinal cases. Employers must now first submit the issue of a spinal surgery to utilization review before they follow the spinal surgery second opinion process. The UR process is shortened to 10 days in the case of a review of a request to perform spinal surgery. In the Elliott case, the claim administrator failed to seek a spinal surgery second opinion after utilization review denied the treating physician's spinal surgery request. The employer did not notify the then unrepresented injured worker of the requirement to file a written objection or request review using the spinal surgery second opinion process. The board denied reconsideration in Elliott concluding that nothing in Sanhagen decision requires an employer to seek further review of its own utilization review decision. The WCAB relied on a prior decision they made in Brasher. However, after deciding Elliott, the WCAB issued their Anbank decision in Cervantes, which sets forth a different procedure and overruled what they had said in Brasher. The Court of Appeal was made aware of this new decision by letter from the WCAB. The Court of Appeal final decision in Elliott agrees now with the position taken by the WCAB in Cervantes that sets forth the detailed process in spinal surgery cases. The DWC has posted a written guideline for claim administrators that clarifies the new procedures under Cervantes and Elliott. The Court of Appeal, in a case certified for publication, confirmed a WCAB finding of independent contractor status in the case of Laura versus WCAB. 
The alleged employer was Metro Diner that operates out of a leased space in a hotel and who was not insured for workers' compensation at the time. At trial on the issue of employment, the Metro Diner called no witnesses. Lara testified that he has been gardening, painting, pipe fixing, and doing graffiti uh, removal for 25 years. His clients are people who either know him or who find him on the street corner. He charges by the hour, but sometimes he contracts for the entire day. He usually does the same type of work, but for different people each day. He trimmed bushes at the roof line of Metro Diner on only two occasions, about one year apart. Lara was paid in cash by the hour for his services at Metro Diner. Out of this, he paid his own taxes. There was no discussion about when he might be called back to work again. Laura brought all of the equipment he needed to do the job, including a trimmer, rake, a broom, and a blower, all of which tools he owned. He also brought a ladder that he borrowed from a friend. He arrived in his own truck. No one told him how to do his job. He testified that this was because he already knew how to do this particular job. Based on these facts, the workers' compensation judge <clears throat> found that Laura was employed by Metro Diner as a gardener and was injured in the course of employment. The judge also found that Metro Diner did not rebut the presumption that Laura was its employee on the date of the injury. The board granted reconsideration and relying on the test in the 1989 case of Borello versus Department of Industrial Relations found that Laura was an independent contractor and thus not entitled to workers' compensation benefits. The Court of Appeal agreed <clears throat> that the Borello criteria weighed in favor of Metro Diner and affirmed the decision of the WCAB that Laura was an independent contractor. The presumption of employment was the pivotal issue that convinced the trial judge and the authors of both dissent opinions that Laura should have been found to be an employee. The fact that Metro Diner did not call any witnesses at trial was not, therefore, a very good defense strategy. The Court of Appeal ruled in favor of the state fund in a suit for premiums against an employer. Here's what happened. State Compensation Insurance Fund sued Envoy Business Solutions to collect unpaid premiums the fund claimed were owed for work comp insurance policies. Envoy is a Professional Employer Organization, or PEO, that provides employee leasing and temporary staffing services to other businesses. The fund does not offer coverage to multi-tiered PEOs, that is, PEOs that have other PEOs as clients. This arrangement is referred to as piggybacking in the PEO industry. During policy renewal in June 2003, the fund's underwriter asked Envoy whether they had any other temporary staffing agencies or PEOs as clients. Envoy's broker responded no to both questions. The fund informed Envoy that it would cancel their policies because the fund believed Envoy had materially misrepresented its relationship with a temporary staffing agency called Select Personnel Services. The policies were canceled in 2003. 
The fund then sued Envoy in 2007 for premiums they claim were due after a payroll audit. The fund alleged that Envoy was engaged in a conspiracy to defraud the fund by concealing information that they needed to calculate the correct premium. The trial court granted a summary judgment against the state fund, finding that the suit was filed too late and barred by a three-year statute of limitations. The court reasoned that the fund was on notice of the fraud when they canceled the policy in 2003, more than three years prior to the filing of this action. The fund appealed to the First District Court of Appeal, who reversed the summary judgment of the trial court. The fund successfully argued that the actions furthering the conspiracy to defraud continued during the audit after the policy was canceled, which creates a continuing cause of action. The Court of Appeal agreed and stated the primary purpose of the conspiracy was to hide Envoy's relationship with Select and avoid paying the corresponding premium. The statute of limitations did not start to run until Envoy received the bills from the state fund fixing the final premium. The suit was commenced within three years of the bill and was therefore timely and not barred by the statute of limitations. And now our fraud report. David Fish and Berger Bassino, the principal owners of Premier Medical Management Systems, have pled no contest to felony charges as part of a plea agreement reached last week. The owners were charged with making false and fraudulent work comp claims and filing false tax returns. Investigators reviewed more than 100,000 financial records to follow the money leading to this prosecution. The investigation determined that Premier purchased large blocks of work comp client referrals from a television advertising service. Once a referral was received, the claimant was sent to doctors and other healthcare providers that had a business relationship with Premier. They would then be sent to various work comp attorneys that also had a financial relationship with the Premier owners. Premier would do the billing and collecting work in return for a 50% or more of what they collected. Fish and Bacino agreed to waive $60 million in medical liens and bills prior to entering their plea of no contest. The Department of Insurance received $900,000 as reimbursement for their investigative costs. In return for the lien dismissals and payment of the costs of the investigation, both owners will be granted three years felony probation. Sentencing in this case is set for June 25th. June and Lucina, a previously convicted ex-guard at Folsom Prison, has been ordered to repay another $170,000 in restitution. The guard's problems began in 1999 when she suffered a work-related injury after a fall. She had surgery in the summer of 2000 and began receiving workers' comp benefits. Lucina also filed for disability retirement with CalPERS, claiming she was severely re restricted in her physical activities. Despite those claims, private investigators filmed her in the summer of 2002 repeatedly going down the water slides at a water park. She later denied under oath 
that she had engaged in these activities. Lucina went to trial and was convicted on 14 counts and received a seven-year prison sentence. She was initially ordered to also pay $244,000 in restitution to CalPERS. Last week, she was also ordered to pay the State Compensation Insurance Fund $170,000 in addition to the earlier restitution order. And now, in regulatory news, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, said that it will again delay implementation of Medicare secondary payer mandatory reporting requirement, which was to begin April 1st. The deadline has been now moved to January 1st, 2011. The reporting requirement originated in the Medicare, Medicaid, and the SCHIP Extension Act of 2007. The new act mandates that workers' compensation claims administrators notify CMS when they process a claim for benefits for a Medicare-eligible worker. Medicare secondary payer reporting requirements are intended to ensure that Medicare remains the secondary payer. Insurers and self-insured employers sought a delay in the reporting deadline, citing a lack of guidance on reporting requirements, among other issues. The schedule for implementation has slipped several times as a result of various CMS administrative delays. Sources say the delay applies only to non-group health plan reporting. It does not apply to group health plan reporting. The DWC has posted online a draft of proposed revisions to the benefit notice regulations. Some of these proposed regulations will clarify that the requirement to send a notice that no permanent disability exists only applies where the employee has sustained compensable lost time. Another provision requires a claims administrator to provide a copy of the QME panel request form as an enclosure to the notice of denial of all workers' compensation benefits. Another provision limits the requirement to send the QME AME fact sheet and QME panel request form to cases where the denial is rated to, related to a medical issue. All changes to the existing regulations and sample benefit notices are now posted online. Interested parties are invited to post comments to the forum that was created by the DWC to discuss these changes. And now our medical report. A new non-invasive procedure for coronary angiography got a thumbs up from researchers this week. Coronary angiography is a diagnostic procedure to help doctors determine how much blockage there is in coronary arteries. The procedure has historically been performed surgically using a catheter inserted into the heart that releases a dye that can be seen on x-ray. The non-invasive coronary angiography can now be performed using a CT scan instead of a surgically placed catheter. However, the downside is that the CT scan exposed the patient to excessive amounts of radiation. A new study showed that patients using the newer CT scanner received 91% less radiation than those who were scanned with the older CT technology. For the study, researchers used the Toshiba Aquilian 1 scanner, which has 
the single heartbeat feature, but can also do conventional CT scans in which the scanner spirals around the patient. Earlier this month, the FDA said it will issue new requirements for makers of CT scanners and other imaging devices to safeguard patients from excessive exposure to radiation. And in other news, investors filed a lawsuit against Zenith National Insurance Corporation over the proposed sale of Zenith to Fairfax Financial Holdings. The Shareholders Foundation filed this lawsuit alleging the directors of Zenith breached their fiduciary duties to shareholders. Zenith and Fairfax announced in February that they have entered into a $1.4 billion merger agreement. Under this agreement, Fairfax will pay $38 per share in cash for all of the outstanding shares of Zenith common stock. $38 per share price represents a premium of 35% over Zenith's book value as of December 31, 2009. The price offered is also higher than the $29 price Zenith shares traded for the day before the merger announcement. According to the complaint, however, the plaintiff alleges that the transaction substantially undervalues Zenith shares through an unfair process. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us this week, and please visit us again next week for more news.